Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. In 1947, entomologist turned sex researcher Dr. Alfred Kinsey established the Institute for Sex Research to protect and preserve his pioneering research on human sexuality. Later renamed the Kinsey Institute, the organization founded by Dr. Kinsey continues his legacy today and is currently celebrating its 75th anniversary. It's impossible to overstate the impact that the Kinsey Institute and its researchers have had on our understanding of human sexuality. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to discuss the past, present, and future of Kinsey. I am joined by Dr. Justin Garcia, the current director of the Kinsey Institute. Appointed in 2019, he is the Institute's eighth director. Dr. Garcia is an evolutionary biologist and sex researcher whose work focuses on the evolutionary and biocultural foundations of romantic and sexual relationships across the life course. He is also a professor of gender studies at Indiana University and the scientific advisor to Match.com. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. Anytime I wake up in the middle of the night, I'm usually super hot. So in order to get a good night's sleep, I have to strip down, crank the AC, and use the covers minimally. But that has all changed thanks to Cozy Earth. Their sheet set, made from sustainable viscose from bamboo fabrics, is softer than cotton and temperature-regulating. It allows me to stay cool and comfortable all night long. Cozy Earth has been one of Oprah's favorites for years, and now it's one of my favorites. You can try their bedding for 100 nights, and if you don't love it, you can send it back for a full refund. Cozy Earth has provided an exclusive offer for my listeners today. Get 35% off site-wide when you use the code SEXANDPSYCHOLOGY. That's all one word. You can find the link and code in the show notes or visit CozyEarth.com to learn more. Enjoy and sleep well. Hi, Justin, and welcome to the Justin episode of the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, Justin. Thanks for having me on. I'm totally honored. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It's always a delight to talk about sex with you. But before we dive into the past, present, and future of Kinsey, let's talk for a second about you. So I don't think I actually know this about you. What inspired you to enter the field of sex research in the first place? So where did your journey begin? Oh, sure. So I actually had a little bit of a circuitous way of getting here. I didn't really intend to be in sex research, and it's not where I initially was training. When I was in undergraduate, I was doing research in a lab of uh, the late Linda Spears. I was an undergraduate research assistant looking at the effects of alcohol on adolescent development in rats, and it was particularly on neural development. And I was I got interested in brains because I had a family member, my cousin, and had brain cancer. And I was really interested in the human brain, not so much the sort of oncology side, although I was worried about that. It was more just, I, I realized what a mystery the human brain was. There was so much we didn't know. So from there, I started doing, the lab's research was on risk-taking, and I got a little bit more interested in those questions. But I was at Binghamton University in New York, and we had an evolutionary studies program. So I stayed and did my master's in anthropology and biomedical anthropology. And my early work was on behavioral neurogenetics, so genes that code for dopamine function in the brain and how that was associated with different types of risk-taking and sensation-seeking, novelty-seeking. So I started studying sex almost as a, just another outcome of some kinds of sensation-seeking and risk-taking. 
And then after that, I decided to pursue a PhD, but I moved disciplines again. So I went from behavioral neuroscience to anthropology to evolutionary biology, where I did my doctoral degree. And in that, I started then really focusing in more on the sexuality component. And I was initially interested, my dissertation was really on the evolution of monogamy. I was kind of interested in how, and I still am to this day, in how in humans we have this separation of what we might call social monogamy as a pair bond system and sexual monogamy in terms of sexual fidelity or exclusivity of a partner and how those two evolved systems can often be in tension with each other and, and so many of our intimate lives, something you've written about in, in your own research on looking at how people struggle or at times succeed in those ups and downs. So that was my own kind of background. And then I, I sort of fell into sex research because I was coming at it from a biological sciences. I didn't really train with anyone who was in the field in terms of sexology. But then I had this really unique opportunity. I came to Kinsey as a postdoc with Julia Hyman, who was the then director, and just everyone who was there being in this place with all these huge names, I was able to retrain. And I still remember getting on the plane for my interview. And I had this moment, I thought, what on earth am I doing? I'm going to Kinsey, which I had taught about. I was teaching the, the sexuality class in the school of nursing as an adjunct. And I thought, oh my God, I'm going to Kinsey. I'm not in really in this field. I'm tangential to it. And it's, what was I, <laughs> what was I thinking? But it was really wonderful. And I, I had a great opportunity. I kind of trained on the job as a postdoc. I learned a lot of new methods and theories. And then I never left. So you're at Kinsey for life, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I have squatters rights now. Yeah. Yes. And you know, you're the accidental sex researcher, like a lot of us. I like to ask my guests about their professional journey. And a lot of us have similar stories about how we kind of fell into it. It wasn't that we had this lifelong dream to become sex researchers, but we discover this passion for this work at some point and it shifts our career in another direction. And you've done so much fascinating work. I'll have to have you back on the podcast at some point to dive into all of that because there's a lot we could discuss. And actually, I cite your research on dopamine and risk-taking and sensation-seeking all the time because I think it really helps us to understand why some people are drawn to more intense sexual behaviors because we just differ in our sensitivity to dopamine based on the receptors that we have. And there's this genetic component to it. And so that can also, I think, even serve as a basis for how something like an intense appeal of kinks or very high sensation-seeking behavior can actually run in families to the extent that there's this genetic component to our dopamine system. So, so much fascinating work we'll have to dive into. But today we're going to talk about the past, present, and future of the Kinsey Institute. So let's start with the birth of this organization. When Dr. Kinsey was conducting his work in the 1940s, this was a pretty perilous time to be a sex researcher. I mean, there were only a handful of people who were even studying this topic in the world, and it was extraordinarily controversial, both publicly and politically. And Kinsey was doing his work at Indiana University, which is a publicly funded school based in a pretty conservative state. And his work was bringing a lot of attention to the university that wasn't necessarily positive at that period in time. So there were concerns about, you know, what would this mean for academic freedom? Also, what would happen to all of this data and information that he was collecting about people's sex lives in the event of his death? And so the Institute was therefore really founded out of necessity. So Justin, can you tell us a little bit more about how the Institute came into existence and also how its purpose and mission has kind of evolved over time? Sure. And it's really an interesting story about Kinsey. And if I can, I want to take one step even further back in history 
because I think it helps explain a little bit about the mission of the Institute. So Kinsey, Alfred Kinsey himself, as, as you said earlier, was, a, was an entomologist, a zoology professor, and he actually achieved quite a lot of success in that part of his career. In my own background is in biology, I knew Kinsey's name not only because of his cataloging of sexualities, but very early on, he wrote an introductory biology textbook, and it was one of the first that used evolutionary theory throughout it, not just as a chapter, but as a unifying framework. That's certainly how many of us think today. And he really was a sort of rising star. I actually recently had the opportunity to visit our colleagues at the American Museum of Natural History in New York, where his gall wasp collection has held over 7 million samples. And it's just a remarkable amount of material. And it's an insight into someone who was almost sort of obsessive in how he liked to collect information and data and was this taxonomist of a variety. And in many ways, I think he was an evolutionist. His bread and butter was diversity of traits. And I think that helped explain the interest in sexuality. How it initially started was in 1938, Indiana University asked Kinsey, to team teach a course. It was called the marriage course. And it was really meant to be the kind of marriage sexual hygiene course. And what many people thought was, well, Kinsey will be safe. He's in biology. He can do the kind of reproduction nuts and bolts unit. He's an evolutionary biologist. He has to talk about reproduction. What happened in the classroom is as Kinsey was teaching, there were so many questions from students that we just didn't know the answers to. He didn't know the answers and no one knew the answers. And in some ways, I think it represents the very best of what should come of university life, right? You take on this bold new class, you realize there aren't the right answers, and you say, we're going to find them out. And so two years in, he was interviewing students in the class and others in the Bloomington community. And then President Herman Wells said, Alfred, you have a choice now. You either will continue to team teach this course, or you need to focus on these sex histories, this big study you're doing. And I think he made a decision many of us can relate to. He said, I'm going to focus full time on my research. And then they embarked on this remarkable journey. They collected, at least in the original study, over 18,000 interviews. Kinsey himself did about half of those. Okay, now to the core of your question. Sorry, I went on a, on a tangent. So how did we get there? So in 1947, the Institute was incorporated as a separate 501c3 at IU. And exactly as you said, Justin, it was to really to encapsulate it, to protect it from outside forces, including at the time the legislature. So Kinsey actually sold what, what became the initial kernel of the collections. He sold to the 501c3 for $1 so that there was a core of holdings of materials. And the reason they did it in 47, it's because the first book, Sexual Behavior in the Human Male, came out one year later. So although throughout the entire 1940s, they were collecting sexual histories, analyzing data, preparing the first book, it was really at that time that they said, before this book comes out, we don't know what the reaction is going to be but we need to kind of protect these histories. And something Kinsey himself was deeply, deeply committed to. I think it's really interesting for us. I know you and I, I know because we've collaborated on research, you and I are so committed to respect for our participants and confidentiality and anonymity. Kinsey was too, in really unique ways, way ahead of his time before the federal Belmont report. So they had an interview style that really tried to protect participants. And that was part of the goal of the separate incorporation. It was protect the data, protect the people who have shared a part of their lives with us and this growing collection that nowhere else in the world really had. 
Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think that gives us great context for how the Institute came into existence. And so, you know, that was the initial purpose of it was this protection, this preservation of all this work that he was doing and the ability to continue doing this type of work. And so it served its purpose back then. So what is the mission today? You know, kind of how has the Kinsey Institute evolved and changed over the last 75 years or so? Yeah, it's a great question, and it has. Um, what's interesting about the Kinsey Institute is it's somewhat influenced by the faculty who were there. So our structure is we're actually no longer a 501c3. We're now part of IU's larger protections of academic universities and institutions. But over those uh, many decades, there's been different shifts in the research program. Sometimes that's partly driven by the director. It's partly driven by resources and grant availability. But the whole idea, the vision for Kinsey, and I think what we've tried to maintain, is having a critical mass of researchers and of infrastructure for researchers of being really multidisciplinary. I mean, Kinsey was a biologist. Gebhard was an anthropologist. The director after them, June Reinisch, was a psychologist. And the people there always had this mix of disciplines and method and theory. And to have this hub for the people and also the library and special collections that they could work on all these different topics. Now, there's been kind of rises and falls in terms of funding availability, support from university administration, attacks from the legislature, some of which have been well-known. There were some in the 90s that came after the Institute uh, because of work that had been grant-funded work on arousal. And there were members of Congress who wanted to remove the funding, uh, you know, tried to get the Institute totally defunded because of that. But the university, again, defended the Kinsey Institute. Actually, also the American Psychological Association came out in strong defense. So there have been these uh, moments. So sometimes the the new directors, when they come in, they have a certain amount of influence in terms of hiring postdocs or or any new faculty. But the thing that I often get asked, people say, well, why don't you study A or start to study XYZ? The challenge there is we are still an academic institution. So the directors don't have the authority. I I don't think they should have the authority to kind of walk down the hall and say, today we're going to study this. But what we can do is make resources available and say, you know, here's something that I think is changing. And how do we focus in on that? How do we put some time and energy or money behind exploring that? I think a great example is a project you and I were involved with, with also Amanda Gesselman and Kristen Mark on the COVID study on looking at the impact of the pandemic on people's romantic and sexual lives. The goal is to say, how do we really get some great people together and answer challenging questions of our time? And we were able to do that. We were able to put some resources behind it. Same thing happened in the 80s, really. The Institute held really important seminars and workshops and and one conference in particular that turned into a book on AIDS and sex. And it was really trying to look at HIV and AIDS and the questions of sex, that although we kind of knew it was a sexually transmitted infection, what's the role of sex and sexuality in understanding this virus and this disease and and the solutions to it? And that was actually quite an influential book. And the the conference at the time had people from all around the world, including the National Institutes of Health. My vision of what the Institute was, and I think should still be, is to really be a hub to bring people together together to ask complex questions around human sexuality that are pertinent to the particular time. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing all of that. And, you know, I think it makes a lot of sense that the Institute needs to evolve and adapt in response to the ever-changing sexual landscape that's around us. You know, I think a lot of people kind of have a tendency to assume that changes in sexual attitudes in the public have kind of been linear over time, meaning that 
from the time of Kinsey, they've kind of continued to get more liberal and sex positive, but that's not the case. You know, it's very curvilinear and ever shifting in all directions. I mean, if you just think about the 1960s and 70s and the sexual revolution, yes, there was a lot of liberalization that happened then, but in the 1980s, you had the Reagan administration, which launched an anti-porn movement, and then the AIDS crisis happening at the same time. And the 80s and 90s were a pretty precarious time for the Institute, as you mentioned, you know, also politically in terms of Congress and people wanting to defund a lot of sex research. So there's this pendulum in society that keeps shifting between more liberal and more conservative attitudes towards sex. And, you know, there's just always this new set of challenges that the Institute has to adapt to and also study the new questions of the time. It's also important to recognize that sex research has always been controversial. It continues to be controversial. You know, there are still people to this day who protest at Kinsey and who really think the Institute should be closed down for good. So can you talk a little bit about some of the current challenges that the Institute or that sex research more broadly continues to face? Sure. And I thank you for bringing that up. And one of the things, when we look at the long history of the Institute, it Initially, a lot of the work was on documenting American sexual lives. And we still do that in a lot of our studies, but we've widened that lens. So often our, our sort of tagline now is exploring sexuality, relationships, and well-being. And uh, sometimes folks say, you know, redrifting from the, the initial focus. I don't think so. I think we've widened. We have more faculty than ever before. We're publishing more studies than ever before. And in, in our last annual report, the Kinsey Researchers published over 100 academic articles. Um, you know, we've got a sort of a big team working on different areas. But you're right, there's often uh, this challenge. And partly it's people's attitudes around sex. Partly it's where people think funding should go. Actually, it's funny you bring up, uh, uh, well, not I don't know if funny is the right word. It's uh, timely that you bring up protesters. We just had them uh, last week. And uh, this group that actually came in particular was interesting because they were worried about sex education in schools. And we're seeing a lot now of national conversations and debate and, and role that the legislature should have in sex education. And when you listen to what this group of protesters say, they, they worry about sex education because they think it could be sexualizing youth or desensitizing them to sexual information. And it kind of goes deeper into starts to get a bit conspiratorial after that. But, uh, you know, when I think of that on its face, I don't think it's a outlandish concern. I actually I get it. People have kids and they're worried. And I think what our role is as researchers and educators in the sexuality space is to say, OK, let's take this, this question, this concern you have. And then let's look at the data. And what we know is that there's decades of research, particularly in the last 15 years or so, that says, you know what, I'm worried too about these same issues. But here's what the data say. The data say that for youth who have sex education, they are have better outcomes. They're more likely to identify sexual abuse. They're more likely to avoid sexual abuse towards them, sexual violence in their own lives, sexually transmitted infection, unintended pregnancies. So if we we really take that view, we can say, hey, I, you're protesting because you're worried about your kids, but we are too. And here's what the data say. It's actually this education, this comprehensive sex education, they will be far better off. So if we really care about them, let's look at the data. Look, you know, In some ways, we could be a united front to moving the needle in the right direction to get to the same solution. Now, of course, it's, you know, I, I think like a scientist, <laughs> it doesn't always logic and data don't always follow. And I think in our space that we're in, in in sexuality, it's important to remember that people do have, they come to the table to discuss some issue of sexuality. They come with 
biases. They come with backgrounds that sometimes are religious, sometimes are cultural, sometimes are just ignorance and not knowing. And I really try to put on my educator hat and say, how do we understand that? How do we actually respect that in some sense and say, you know, I can't walk up the steps and yell at them and just say, you're wrong. Uh, although I want to often, uh, and really say, like, how do we get somewhere that we can have a meaningful conversation and actually use the science and the data to make make the world a better place? And I, and I actually really do see that as the agenda of the Kinsey Institute. What were the sort of the biggest, longest going sexological research institute in the world? How do we leverage that? Not to sound, you know, so too uh, uh, professorial, but how do we leverage that to really make the world a better place, to ramp up the quality uh, of conversations around sexuality, to make it more informed. Kinsey used to use this expression of bringing light into darkness. And I think that absolutely is at the center of our mission today. I absolutely love everything that you just said. And your philosophy on this is exactly what has been my guiding approach to the work that I've done as a sex educator in the public sphere. I see how other sex educators approach things. And I know they're all well-intentioned, but some of them come with the approach of, you're wrong and I'm right. And, you know, here's the way that you need to change, you know, and there's not that respect for the fact that, okay, people are coming at this from these very different perspectives, different cultural upbringings, religious upbringings. And when you just come in and say, you're wrong, here's the way you need to think, it's not very effective at getting people to change their minds. It's very effective for growing a social media following of people who already agree with you in the first place. But are you really bringing anybody else from the other side? And so that's why in my career, I've been open to going on any and all different kinds of programs, regardless of their political slant, because I want to be able to speak to people who I think would most benefit from this information, the people who haven't made up their mind or who might have a different perspective. And I don't come at this and say, you're wrong. Rather, here's what the data say, and what can we do to try and reach a productive solution here. So obviously there are all kinds of different ways to approach this, but I think where we really need to go with research and data is try to change the minds of the people who's could really benefit from this information, especially with all of these hot button political issues that center around sex. You know, we talked about sex education and the myth versus the reality of that. But then there's also the whole abortion debate, you know, where if you want to reduce rates of abortion, the single most effective way to do that is to make comprehensive sex ed widely available and increase access to contraceptives. And, you know, if we had a conversation about that instead, we might really get somewhere instead of this all or nothing question about what should the legal restrictions be on it. So anyway. <laughs> exactly. No, I love it. And I agree with you so much. And it's uh, it's why I love that you're a part of the Kinsey Institute team. I mean, I think really what you do so well is trying to translate data and how do we make it understandable? And I think that's a role that Kinsey really has, the whole institute, all of us, you, me, and our, our colleagues, is to really take what we're doing. We can publish it in academic journals, you know, move this sort of scientific agenda. We can have this collection, the Kinsey Institute Library and Special Collections, all these unique materials available for scholars and students. But then how do we take all of that, what we're doing in the kind of ivory tower, and communicate it to a more general audience in a way that's not, you know, we have conferences that we talk to each other and our, and our colleagues. We have our, our luncheons that we talk to each other. But how do we really say, this is complicated data. There are a lot of factors involved in sexuality, whether it's personal attitudes, public attitudes, physiological traits, like we talked about earlier, 
what I love about sex is given my own academic background is it, it truly is always biopsychosocial, right? We always are dealing with those mix of factors. We might focus on a specific piece, but how do we take all that and make that make sense to people of why it's important? And, you know, in some sense, I do think we are at a public institution. We do try and do public engagement. We need to help people understand why the work is so important and needs to be funded and needs to be shared widely. And I think that's my strategy for how we continue to do good work. And I think it's how the Institute has survived for 75 years. The Kinsey Institute has always been an unbiased source of information. It's, you know, meant to be a non-judgmental place and not have a particular position. We do have consultative status to the United Nations, and we've done some things mostly just around sexual violence. And that's an area where I, I personally don't think is should be political. But otherwise, we really try and say, how do we just understand these issues holistically? So thanks for being a part of that. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So Dr. Kinsey's original research and the work that followed at the Institute has been extraordinarily influential in shaping the way that we think about human sexuality. So I'd like to highlight maybe a couple of key contributions that have emerged from Kinsey. And one obvious one is the recognition that sexuality exists on a spectrum, and it isn't just this binary thing. Now, the famous Kinsey scale is what helped us initially to understand that people aren't just either heterosexual or homosexual. There are a lot of shades in between, and some people who don't have any sexual attraction at all. So I know there's a lot to draw on here, and there are probably thousands of studies associated with the Kinsey Institute at this point. But what are some of the other key contributions that come to mind for you that have really changed the way that people think about sex? Oh, gosh, that's such a good, that's a hard question. (laughs) It's a really good one. I think uh, you're right, just to echo, I think the original, the Kinsey scale of helping us think about sexuality on a continuum, sort of how things happen in the natural world, that there's all this variation around us, is helpful. And I think over the years, there's just been these, there's been moments that researchers and research projects out of the Kinsey Institute have been kind of a guiding light. I think certainly in the with the peak of HIV and AIDS in the, in the 80s, and so much, as something you said before reminds me, so much of sex research at that time, many of our colleagues really swung towards sexual health because it was a way that seemed kind of safe. You could talk about sex if you talk about HIV, if you talk about sexually transmitted infections. And what we really tried to do is sort of before before you and I were born, was really focus the institute on sexuality, including in the 70s and you know in the 80s, of really saying we're not gonna focus on a particular disease model or a sort of problematic model or a particular clinical issue. So there have been these moments, I think, that there's been a lot of big things. There's certainly our colleagues, uh, the dual control model, which is an important model in sex research, emerged out of Kinsey, largely with uh, Eric Jensen and John Bancroft, also Stephanie Sanders and Cynthia Graham and others have used it, thinking about sexual excitation and inhibition, the sort of gas and brake pedal of sexual arousal and response. I think that was hugely informative for sex researchers and just behavioral scientists more broadly. The Kinsey, condom, uh, Kinsey Institute condom use research team, K.I. Kurt, over two decades now, they've been studying different aspects of condom use and misuse. And sometimes they're questions that really lie at the heart of interventions on condom use. Why is it that people will have them in the house, in the nightstand? You could reach. You don't even have to get out of the bed and not use them. And understanding all the kind of psychological and social factors and health intervention issues of whether people use or don't use contraceptives, but also how they misuse them. And it turns out, you know, they've had some really great studies that show how 
people will sometimes, if you just ask someone, did you use a condom at your last sexual event? They'll say yes. But then when you dive a little further, you say, well, they used it, but they took it off halfway through the event. So they're still saying they used it, but it was incomplete or, or misused. They put it on backwards and tried to put it on again. And then so that we, if we're thinking about sexual transmitted infection epidemiology, that those questions are just not a matter of whether you used it or not. Similarly, basic questions about what it means to have had sex. When, when researchers at Kinsey asked people, you know, did you have sex? What does that actually mean? That doesn't necessarily mean the same thing to a young heterosexual male as a middle-aged lesbian woman. And that's okay, right? But how do we understand that if we just ask people in a study, did you have sex, that there's a lot more nuance and variation depending on your own demographics, on the kind of behaviors you regularly engage in. For instance, if we take a, a lesbian a woman or a couple or a relationship, they might say they had sex, but maybe there wasn't a penetrative event involved. Maybe there was, but in that case, we're seeing that a lot of women often will report it was sex without a penetrative event, whereas you might ask heterosexuals in the absence of a penetrative event, they wouldn't consider the event. Maybe it was foreplay, maybe it was oral sex, but wouldn't consider it sex. So, so those very basic, uh, uh, fundamental methodological questions about sex and sexuality and gender and relationships are some of the things Kinsey's done. I actually think that the recent study on the impact of the COVID pandemic on people's romantic and sexual lives that we were involved with, I think that was hugely important. There were so many people looking for answers to what was going on in our intimate lives. And we were able to provide some guidance to that. And a lot more, I guess I'm, I'm now I'm getting carried away with myself. I think there's a lot of moments that the Institute has had studies. And if I can jump to another thing, I think the other thing the Institute's done is the research, but also really stood for academic freedom throughout that time in those decades. Um, some people know in 1956, the Institute was involved in a very important Supreme Court case involving what's called the 31 photographs. And it was that the Institute had mailed photographs uh, through the U.S. Postal Service, and they were seized by the federal government. And I, Indiana University ultimately won that case. And it was really about what is the definition of obscenity? At what point can government you know, censor sexual or erotic materials? And the sort of academic rights to study these issues, I, that's a legacy that really we've left with that's remarkable in terms of understanding what is academic freedom, how, how does sex and sexuality play into our First Amendment rights, a whole host of issues there that I think is, you know, maybe not so much on the research side, but in terms of the intervention side. Sadly, Kinsey died right before that. He actually died quite young, uh, before that case was ultimately determined in, their, in the Institute's favor and IU's favor. And a number of historians have said that the stress of that is uh, probably what contributed to his early death. Yeah. I mean, there's so much there, so many important studies and so many ways that the Institute itself has had this lasting impact, not just in the world of research, but more broadly, right? So you can see that through all of these different examples. And since you brought up, you know, the mailing of these photographs, you know, I think it's also important to mention that the Kinsey Institute isn't just a place for sex research. It's also in the business of historical preservation and artwork. And as you've told me before, a little known fact is that the Kinsey Institute is actually home to the world's largest collection of erotic art and artifacts outside of the Vatican, which is kind <laughs> of humorous when you think about it, that the only person who has a bigger collection of erotic art than you is the Pope. But <laughs> Kinsey himself started collecting things from around the world that were related to sex. And, you know, as you mentioned, that got him in trouble with the government because at the time it was illegal to send sex-related stuff through the mail, including contraceptives. So over time, 
the Institute's collection has grown. It's not just the things that Kinsey himself collected, but you've had people who've donated things. The Institute has made acquisitions. Other researchers have donated their own archives. So you've got this amazing wealth of information in the collection. So can you tell us just a little bit about that? And maybe if you have a favorite item or two from it, uh, a little story about that. Oh, God, yeah. When Kinsey uh, first established the collections, it was really meant to be, if you look at the early work, even how it was cataloged. So Liana Joe, our uh, director of library and special collections and, and the head librarian at the Institute, I've learned so much from her about archiving and about how materials are in a, in a research collection to make it accessible to scholars. And Liana, in her own right, is so well known in the sort of librarian and archival circles. She's actually serving on a committee now for the Library of Congress with the whole idea that, you know, could Kinsey have a role in understanding how are we even cataloging and naming things in terms of how it's accessible to scholars and all around the world, not just in our collections, but including in you know, other national collections. And so what started with about 15,000 items from when the Institute was first founded, it was really cataloged as, as really visual data. It was really meant to be you know, news clippings and photos that tell us something about sex at the time. It wasn't until much later that we really started a fine art collection and a curator was added, an art curator was added to the Kinsey staff, actually during June Reinish's tenure as the director. And today we have over 600,000 items. So it's a massive collection. And as you said, Justin, it's art, artifacts, archives, books, uh, video, a film of uh, gorgeous photography, just a, a lot of material that tries to capture different aspects of sex and gender. Our amazing curator, Rebecca Fassman, has just mounted a new exhibition in our, in our new space at the Kinsey Institute in Lindley Hall at IU called Universal Language, really exploring sexual and gender diversity in, in the Kinsey collections. And, and she does a lot of traveling exhibitions. So we'll often have shows in different places at the World Erotic Art Museum in Miami and uh, Berlin and Chicago and New York. And we're always looking for collaborators for that. And uh, it's been really amazing because there's just so many materials. There are things that I like in part because of my, when I started in anthropology, I remember uh, what are sometimes called moche sex pots. And they were these artifacts that had people engaging in sexual activity on it. And it wasn't initially, people just assumed it was heterosexual intercourse, a sort of uh, a vaginal penetrative intercourse. And it wasn't until much later that feminist anthropologists looked more carefully at these moche pottery and they said, did, did anyone realize this isn't, you know, that whatever these acts are, it appears to be two men and it appears to be anal sex that they're engaging in. And it just sort of didn't dawn on any of the original anthropologists that that could be what they were looking at. So I kind of love those for their historical relevance in terms of reminding us to always widen the lens when we're looking. But we have so many items. I actually really love, I think, because because we're in the behavioral sciences, uh, we have this wonderful letter by uh, Sigmund Freud, these handwritten letters that are at the Institute. And there's one in particular where a mother writes, uh, she was so concerned about her son, which she thought, you know, could be in the letter shirts, you know, he could be homosexual. And what does that mean? And is he going to be okay? And in the letter back, uh, for he just writes, that might be the case and he's okay. <laughs> and just a reminder, you know, throughout history that people have grappled with trying to just understand what their sexualities are and the sexualities of those around them, their friends, their family. And there's so much uh, concern and often a lot of it, and I think your work actually points to this so beautifully, especially your work on fantasies, that we that we vary in what we like and who we are. And at the end of the day, for the most part, that's okay. Right? There's, there are people that struggle with parts of their sexualities, but that's not what typifies the human experience when it comes to sex and sexuality. 
and rather it's diversity and, and most of us are okay with it. We also have George Platt Line, who Maplethorpe, Robert Maplethorpe, who many people will know, his photography was largely influenced by George Platt Line. And Platt Lines was known for his photography of the uh, New York City Ballet, in addition to male nudes, his sort of gorgeous nudes, and his use of light and black and white. I have three George Platt Lines in my office, as, as you know, as some folks know, and I they're just so stunning, the use of light in them. And uh, being at Kinsey has given me a much deeper appreciation for art um, in a way that, you know, I was a a head down lab scientist early in my life. And I think it's just helped me think about all the ways that sex and sexuality, relationships, gender, reproduction, touch our lives and how beautiful it can be in all its diversity. I love all of that. And, you know, it's funny when you were talking about the letters that Freud wrote, trying to answer this mother's question, you know, it reminds me of how in Freud's time, in Kinsey's time, you know, the single most common question that they would get asked is, am I normal? And flash forward 75 years after the Institute was founded, that's the most common question that I get from people who are listeners of this podcast, people who read my blog. And so it's funny that in some ways, so much has changed, but so much hasn't, that we still have this lack of knowledge about sexuality that's out there. And so many people who are just asking this question, am I normal? And I think it highlights the fact that we still have a lot of work to do. And part of the reason why the Institute continues to remain relevant is that there's this persistent gap in sexual knowledge. And so I think that feeds into my last question for you, because I know we're running short on time, which is about what the future of the Kinsey Institute is going to be. You know, we've talked about the past and the present, but where does it need to go and how does it need to change and evolve over the next 75 years? Uh, such a good question. It's one I ask myself uh, almost every day, uh, especially recently. I mean, the, the 75th anniversary is such a great moment for us to reflect on all that's been done. But also, as we think about all of that and what the Institute used to do, what we're currently doing, but how do we really think about where we go next? And one thing that's important to me is that the Institute, it's not just a mausoleum. It's not just looking back on the legacy of one person. And I think that's complicated with any like legacy institute or any center that's named after someone is that we have this founder that did something so remarkable. And, but how do we build off that? You know, we want to honor that. And a big part of our mission is historical preservation with the collections, but how do we push research forward? So one of our big goals right now is more accessibility. So making sure the library and special collections, we have brand new renovated space. It actually opens with the 75th anniversary. So we have a new library reading room, we have the new uh, Dr. Carolyn Beebe Art Gallery. We have a historical exhibition in the hallways of the Institute. Uh, we actually have a sculpture of Dr. Kinsey that's being unveiled. So to honor that past, but to also really say we need to continue to do innovative research. I think we do that in a few ways. Part of it is trying to really recruit and retain some of the very best sexologists and relationship researchers and scientists and people working on these different pieces of this complex puzzle so uh, that's part of our agenda is really maintaining that critical mass of people. And one of the things that really is important to me is that if you're at Kinsey today, it's about being a collaborator. You know, my colleague, Rebecca, will kill me for using the word synergy. But, but really, how do we think of the Institute as, you know, academics, you can be an academic in your department and do your thing. But the whole goal of a research institute is how do we bring all these expertise to one place and do something bigger than ourselves? And I think that's the sort of superordinate 
organism. And that's what I really think about Kinsey being, the Kinsey Institute being, is that we honor our past and we think about how it got us here. And there have been these historical flash moments that are so important for the field. But really, we need to continue to do innovative research and thoughtful research and thoughtful and important education. So we're focusing a lot more on our education program. So some folks know we offer a summer intensive and also not just in the summer, it's sort of like a boot camp for a certificate. My colleague Jessica Hilly runs those. We also do a book club now to try and highlight research from some of our colleagues once a semester. We do a lecture and discussion series that's more resident focused for people who are here and trying to support more research. I think there's a lot of questions today about the ecology of our sex and sexuality, so including different relationship contexts, something you and I know are both interested in, but whether it's sex without a partner or with multiple partners or a casual relationship, a serious relationship, that's sort of one of the areas we're working on. But, but also there's so many, but you brought this up earlier, attitudes and norms are changing rapidly right now. And I think part of that is after the pandemic, part of that's what's going on you know, in my own research and Singles in America project with Matt, we look at how open people are to dating of different backgrounds, what sociologists call homophily. And what we see is that this pattern of people dating across race and ethnicity and religion, people are more accepting than ever before. But now things like political orientation are the new divide. So in any given moment, these things are changing so much based on what's happening in the world around us. And what I really want the Kinsey Institute to be able to do is to continue to respond to the world around us, to be a place for information, up-to-date information. The hard part of your question is it's hard to predict what exactly we'll do next because we want to be nimble enough to move with the world. But like one thing I can say for certain is we are more open and accessible than ever before. And I want to invite everyone to join us, to you know whether it's on social media or even better, come visit us at Indiana University, our new space, our gallery, our reading room, and be a part of that journey with us. I think that's so great. And I think, you know, that philosophy of you can't predict the future, but you can set yourself up to be flexible and adaptable is a great guiding mission for the Institute, but also just a great way to approach your sex life and relationships more broadly, (laughs) right? You can't predict the future. (laughs) I hadn't thought of that. But yes. So maybe it's like a sexual philosophy, you know, that works really well and people's personal lives also works really well in the world of sex research. Yeah. So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Justin. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and how they can support the mission of the Kinsey Institute? Absolutely. And thanks for having me on. This is such a treat to be I'm one of your uh, so many amazing guests you've had on this podcast. Uh, so I encourage folks to look up the Kinsey Institute. We're on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Uh, we'll often post about our lecture and discussion series. They tend to be um, the virtual options available. We also have a website with quite a lot of information, just kinseyinstitute.org. Me personally, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Justin Garcia, and I'll often post about our research, sometimes with Kinsey, sometimes other stuff. I'm learning a lot from you on how to be more effective communicating to the world. But folks are welcome to join us on that journey uh, now and always. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform, or I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. 
You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, and head over to KinseyInstitute.org to learn more about the Kinsey Institute's mission and learn how you can support the organization. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.